Welcome to Beautiful Business, the podcast where functional evolves into beautiful. And now your host, Stephen Morris. Well, today I am very, very excited to host the highly creative and vivid human being, Gay Hendricks. Gay is a psychologist, a prolific writer of more than 35 books, and he is a renowned and respected teacher in the fields of personal growth, relationships, and body intelligence. And he and his wife, Katie, have worked together for more than 40 years. Their work together includes authoring books or co-authoring books, running workshops, and hosting trainings. And I, I had the honor to work with Gay, and I can tell you firsthand, he is one of the most gifted most generous, most creative people that I've had the honor to work with. Gay Hendricks, welcome to The Beautiful Business. Well, thank you so much, Stephen. What kind words. Thank you very much. I, I feel very much appreciated. And I actually want to start, as I love to start any project, with a moment of appreciation. And I have a question for you that's based on appreciation. I've had the pleasure now of reading one of your books and also getting your newsletters that you send out uh, every week or two. And it is some of the most clear writing about this subject that I've ever seen. And I just wanted to ask you point blank, where the heck did you learn to write like that? <laughs> well, uh, first and foremost, thank you. Uh, uh, coming from you, uh, that is a, an incredibly kind thing to hear and a wonderful thing to hear. Um, to your question, I think there's, there's probably a couple of different things that sort of fuel the writing. I am a huge proponent in generosity and empathy. And when I'm writing to um, my blog audience of 25,000 plus people, or even writing a book, the, the, what, what I'm actually doing is picturing I have a personal relationship with the person that I'm trying to communicate with on the other side, who is the reader. And what I want to do is as much as humanly possible through the lens of writing and even blogging or, or book writing is touch their heart and soul and offer something of incredible value to them that they can either walk around the world thinking about uh, or feeling through or actually implementing in, in their day-to-day -day life. And especially the intersection between how they show up at work and how they become a whole human being and integrate their personal lives into the work. And so I appreciate that, Gay. Well, I'm glad. And uh, I just want the audience to know, too, that I didn't prep that for Stephen. I actually didn't tell him I was going to do that. So I appreciate you being able to formulate a real clear response to that. And I just, uh, again, want to home in on the fact that the, the writing you do does actually serve that purpose. It does touch the heart. But what I also really love about it is every single one I've read so far has a practical, useful thing that I can take away from that, even though I've been thinking about this stuff for, you know, 50 some years now, uh, I always appreciate a new little nugget of information that I can put to work in my regular life or in my business life. And so, uh, yeah, just to complete that thought, I really appreciate for the amount of heart and mind you put into your uh, written work. No, oh, thank you, Gay. Yeah, I, I have this a strange balance between a, a fiercely pragmatic streak and um, also uh, a highly imaginative person where I'm trying to come up with these ideas. And 
you know, again, I deeply appreciate that you're recognizing that and that you're giving voice to that. And uh, thanks for the kind words. So shifting gears here real quick, um, how would you describe the business that you're in and the work that you do, Gay? I'm in the business and also in the sole purpose, S-O-U-L purpose of expanding in my own creative genius and in my own abundance and in my own ability to give and receive love every day as I inspire other people to do the same. So what I do is find every way possible, even whether it's a book or a podcast or a television show. Uh, we got kind of put on the map 30, 30 some years ago by Oprah. And so I'm a big believer in you know, getting the word out any possible way I can. Uh, because to me, the great joy of life is being able to do what you most love to do while you're doing things that inspire other people to do what they most love to do. And that was really why I sat down and wrote the, the Big Leap years ago was because I found it so deeply satisfying in my life to spend my days doing what I most love to do. And so I felt so good about that. It changed my life so much that I wanted to help make it possible for other people to tap into their genius and do what they most love to do. And boy, has it been richly rewarding. Uh, pretty much every day of my life, I, I say I have the best inbox in the world because people send me examples of big leaps they've made in their business life or their love life or their entrepreneurial journey. Uh, and they're always just wonderful stories about things that people are doing when they tap into their genius. So um, I, I'd say ultimately I'm in the genius business, uh, accessing it and doing my best to inspire it in others. Oh, that's beautiful. The genius business. Uh, I'm, I'm going to introduce you in the future as uh, my friend who is in the genius business and you have to read his work. <laughs> so great. You know, so for, for those that are listening, um, let's put a little context to this. Um, the, let's talk first about the big leap and in particular what we call the, or what you refer to as the upper limit problem. So can you just give us a high level framing of what that's all about? Yes. Well, the big leap, the book, the big leap is about two main things. One, it's about the upper limit problem and how to, how to get out from under your particular version of the upper limit problem. And the second thing is once you get out from under your upper limit problem, how to occupy your genius zone, that part of yourself that already is a genius, doesn't need any more input, it needs inviting forth. And so to do that, most of us have to confront our upper limit problem. And your upper limit problem is think of it as kind of like um, a governor on a car that only lets you go up to 30 miles an hour and then it shuts down or holds you back. And you don't know who installed it though. <laughs> You're not sure where it came from. Was it installed at the factory or did somebody slip it in there on you? You see everybody else doing 60 or 80 miles an hour, but you seem to stall out at 30. So the upper limit problem is whatever way we manufacture in ourselves to limit the 
outward expression of our genius and the inward experience of soul satisfaction. So in my view, Stephen, all of us have a birthright of something that's deeply soul satisfying in us, what we most love to do and what we're most gifted to do. And we also have an urge in us to make the biggest possible contribution to other people around us, to our family, to our kids, to our community, to the world at large, if you write books or do broadcasts like you do. To me, those two things are sacred to human beings, contacting that part of yourself that's pure genius, that's what you most love to do, and that other part of ourselves too, which is sacred, which is how to express that genius in ways that change other people's lives. So the upper limit problem is whatever our minds and our programming manufactures to keep us stuck in our old programming. So think of it as also a speed bump, that if you get to going too fast and miss the early signals, you hit a speed bump and boing and uh, rattle your fillings. And so the upper limit problem is our limiting belief system that keeps us trapped at a certain level of our, our ability to express our genius. A common one, they're all based on fear. And a common one, a lot of people limit themselves because they're afraid of outshining other people. Something back in your programming may have install that in you. Maybe you were taught to kind of hold things down when you were a kid or not, not to look smarter or better than the other kids. Down in Australia, they call it the tall poppy syndrome. Don't be the tall poppy. Don't stand out above the other kids. Stay down in the pack. And so many of us have a version of the tall poppy syndrome in us where we're kind of afraid of outshining other people. I like to think, though, that the better way to look at that, if you're one of those folks, is to go ahead and shine as brightly as you want to shine and, and let yourself know that it's not harmful to other people, that it actually inspires other people. So rather than taking up all the light, what you're doing is producing more light for everybody. And so I say, go ahead and shine. The other big program, a lot of people up, operate in a old negative limiting program of thinking there's something fundamentally flawed about them, that they're not smart enough or not good looking enough or not whatever enough to have a good life, to have a successful life. And, you know, that kind of programming comes sometimes from your parents or your siblings, but also just from the world around us, you know, that, that shows up in a certain way. And, you know, if you show up in a way that, you know, speaks the wrong language or is the wrong color or was born in the wrong place or something like that, then you've got an extra kind of filter system to get through to be able to access your genius and bring it out in the world. And, you know, plenty of people do that and bless their magnificent hearts because all the time you see people and I know people actually that started with zip and ended up multi-millionaires and making a big contribution and things like that. So thank heavens there's the room in our world and in life for us to kind of come out of nowhere and uh, take ourselves all the way to the top. So 
the upper limit problem is whatever thing you use to kind of knock yourself back down. Uh, like I first caught on to it when I was trying to lose some weight uh, way back, you know, 50, 55 years ago. And I, I was working at a boarding school for delinquent boys at the time. And the one thing it had was unlimited food, <laughs> and, you know, because they they wanted to keep the kids quiet and sedated, and mm -hmm. so you know there was peanut butter sandwiches at night and huge lunches and everything. And so uh, anyway, I, I had gained a bunch of weight and I started to lose the weight, and I would do fine for three or four days. I'd lose three or five pounds, you know, a pound a day or something like that, and then I'd sabotage myself. Suddenly, I'd get a craving for chocolate caramels or vanilla ice cream or whatever my favorite thing was at the time. And I would go out and sabotage my diet. And then I'd have to go through the whole process of getting it started again. Fortunately, I, uh, I had an enlightenment experience kind of as I was getting underway that showed me a better way to do it, which was to, uh, I don't know why it took me 25 years to figure this out, but to actually choose foods that fed my spirit rather than fed my obese body. And so I started eating these radical things like apples and uh, vegetables and uh, yeah. broccoli and things like that, that I love now, but I've never, ever eaten before. And so uh, once I got onto my new spirit diet, I dropped all the weight within a year or so. Oh, that's beautiful. You know, when I first read The, the Big Leap, uh, and, and it was a profound book for me because uh, while you discovered these things some 55 years ago, I was in my, I think my early 50s when I first came upon that book. And when I first read it, I thought about, you know, the, the potency behind this idea of the upper limit problem. And the poem by Mary, Marianne Williamson came to mind. I think the title of the poem is called Our Deepest Fear. And the first lines of that poem go something along the lines of our, our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we're powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our dark darkness that frightens us most. And as I think about, you know, bumping up in my own upper limit problems and, you know, elements that are associated with that, I then go back into these lines of poetry to remind myself, especially from a, a soul or a spiritual level, that it is this power that we actually have. And I think you, you write so eloquently about that in most of what you write about uh, is to go into this element of, that's in all of us, our, our zone of genius that is powerful beyond measure. That's exactly Marianne expresses it so beautifully. Actually, she and I kind of got our starts at the same time on Oprah way back 30, 35 years ago, and um, uh, have been good friends ever since. And I really appreciate all of her support and kindness over the years that she's shown us. I, uh, I love that quotation from her because it expresses beautifully another quote that I use in, um, in my books, which is, from one of the apocryphal gospels that uh, didn't make it into the official Bible, but has some really great things in it. And there's this one quotation that I find so inspiring. It says that if you bring forth what is within you, what is within you will save you. To me, that's the essence of bringing forth your genius, because it also has 
health benefits. It has wealth benefits. Mm-hmm. But you know, people that get in the habit of bringing forth their genius and expressing more of their genius, to me, make themselves healthier and healthier and healthier. One of my early mentors, Buckminster Fuller, was filing patents well into his 80s. I think he filed more than 500 patents before his time came. And he, he had a beautiful life and a beautiful death. He passed away holding his wife's hand in the hospital as she was passing away. Mm. To me, that's a wink from the universe that you've lived life well if you get to have that kind of a high quality exit too. And so to me, the thing that energizes us so much in life is going down deep inside and asking ourselves questions like, what am I really here for? What do I love to do so much that I'm willing to make money doing it, but I'd also do it for free if I could pay my bills otherwise. So finding that thing in ourselves that we're passionate about, and usually people don't have to throw away the rest of their lives in order to find it. I say find it in 10 minutes at a time a day. Um, You know, like I have a, a client who is a medical doctor who was burnt out, but then I am asking her, okay, what do you most love to do? And the only thing she could come up with was the experience, the freedom of riding her horse when she was a kid. So guess what I asked her to do? (laughs) (laughs) Go out and get yourself a horse right away. And ends up now she's got a half a dozen of them and everything and is expressing her passion, you know, through caring for horses and and all of uh, the things that go along with loving animals. Uh, raising a foundation for it. And she's still doing a fine medical practice too. Mm -hmm. So um, a lot of people think if they contact their genius, they have to go off and rent a cave in Tibet or, you know, paddle a canoe off to Tahiti or something like that to do it. But I recommend just start in 10 minutes a day of doing what you most love to do. Mm, So good. You know, in, in the spirit of, you know, you can't give what you don't have, you know, I think about those folks who have difficulty finding love for themselves. Uh, I wonder if from your perspective if you know, and this may be an obvious question, but is loving yourself a prerequisite to finding love in either relationship or in your work or in your creativity, or even uh, is it the key to the threshold of finding, discovering, and living in your zone of genius? Yes. Uh, As a matter of fact, uh, one of the first books that I wrote was called Learning to Love Yourself. And it it was based on a personal experience of mine of finding that kind of place of unconditional love for myself for for the first time when I was around 30 years of age. And it was a major turning point in my life. And Well, here's the way I think of it. We're always going to get in our relationships the exact equivalent love that we give to ourselves. Because what's our first relationship? Well, it's with yourself. It's with your body. It's with your breathing. It's with your being inside your skin. And so if you don't have a good relationship with that, if you're 
focusing a lot of negative energy on your body or your emotions or the way your mind works or whatever you, you're focusing negative energy on, those same things need to be reclaimed with love. Life doesn't really work if we're aiming beams of negative energy at, our, at ourselves. It's just like a car doesn't work when you're going down the highway if one of the wheels is out of alignment. You get a shimmy through the entire car, even though 99.9% .9 of the car is working just fine. This one little place is shaking your brains loose. And so we have to use that information that comes in constantly from the world around us to ask that question, you know, what part of myself do I need to love right now? And what part of the world do I need to learn to love right now so I can act effectively toward it? So I think, uh, getting back to your original question, I think we're in a constant interacting, interactive loop with learning to love ourselves and learning to love things outside ourselves. And the more things you learn to love in yourself, the more things you will be able to love outside yourself. You'll be able to understand things that were unclear to you before. Because as our level of love for ourselves increases, so does our ability to see what's going on in the real world around us. So I'm a big proponent of yeah. making every moment of life be about expanding in love every day, because the more you do that, the more it fuels and energizes and lubricates all of life. Mm, so good. You know, and, and as you know, Gay, a fair bit of the work that I do is in the world of business, but also sort of in the intersection between how humans show up as their wholehearted self or whole human beings in the world of work. And, you know, you, you talk so eloquently in um, your most recent book, The Genius Own, uh, about how to discover your own creativity. And it felt like to me, as I was reading some of the passages within that, you know, part of it is, and I think you actually say this in the book, it's you're, you're like wooing your relationship or your own creativity or even your own, own, own genius zone. And I wonder if you have some tips, tools, or and or practices for people who, you know, I think about the, the entrepreneurial journey, those people who are discovering, how do I create a business that arises the best version of myself into a practice of work, work, workplace that serves humanity in its greatest way possible? And I think there's actually a genius in that. And I wonder if you have... Uh, tools or tips or insights that you can share with people to woo their own creativity, especially or perhaps through the lens of entrepreneurship? Great question. Well, here's the way I look at it. Yes, your creativity, your genius does need to be wooed. And if you think of how you would woo a beloved, first of all, you'd be really nice to it. And you'd also want to spend time with it. And so one of the first things we need to do with our genius is to honor it and woo it, is to actually invite it forth and spend time with it. So interestingly enough, um, one of the most powerful things we do when people come here to spend a day working with us, like uh, a typical scenario is uh, a corporation 
will send their CEO or one of their vice presidents to work with us for a day to sort out some things or to get a boost. And one of the main things we do is a little 10-minute process very early on in the day where the person goes in a room by themselves and there's not even a clock or anything. There's just a chair in there. And we invite them to do this one thing for 10 minutes. And here's, here's a gift to your audience here because this, this day cost the corporation $25,000. So let me give you a $25,000 freebie here, a present. What, okay. Quite a gift. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, what we ask the person to do is ask a question in their mind every 30 seconds. And then for the 30 seconds to take three slow, easy, deep breaths, and then ask the question again in their mind, and then take three slow, easy, deep breaths, which takes about 30 seconds. Okay, so basically twice a minute, you're floating this question, what we call a wonder question in your mind. So here's the question. And here's exactly how we ask you to say it. Hmm. What do I most love to do? Hmm. What do I most love to do? We particularly invite you to make the hum in your mind, because when you hum in your mind physiologically, it integrates the two sides of your brain across your corpus callosum. So a humming sound is a sound that will integrate those two sides of your brain. So a wonder question is a question that you'd really love to know the answer to, and you really don't know the full answer to. So think of that question. Hmm. What do I most love to do? Hmm. That opens you up to things in yourself that you may never have wondered about. To me, wonder is one of the great gifts of the creative person's life, because a creative person is able to stop and ask, hmm, what really needs to happen next? Hmm, what shifts do I need to make in myself to unlock the next bit of my creativity? See, those are great questions to wonder about. Like Stephen King says, you don't, you don't get to call yourself a writer until you're sitting there staring at a blank page, asking yourself, what the hell do I do next? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, until you find your way through those creative stuck places. And that I, there's a lot of wisdom to that because to me, what gets us stuck is also what is the pathway to our creativity. So don't ever resist getting stuck. When you get stuck, when you feel constricted, when you've got a relationship breakdown, don't avoid those. Those are the paths to your genius because when you can get inside the thing that's making you feel stuck and let go of whatever your particular barrier is, you get to have a direct connection with your creative genius. Mm. So look forward to getting stuck. Don't resist it. Open up to it. Welcome it because that's the seeds of your genius. That's so good. You know, it's interesting having done that practice that you've just described where you sit and sit quietly and, and enter into a set of questions with that. Hmm. 
It also strikes me that, and I don't know if there's science behind this, and you may know more about this than I do. You certainly know about the brain science, but it also feels like to me that, hmm, feels a little bit like an ohm. And all of a sudden, when I enter into that particular space and use that, that, that sort of primal language that isn't exactly words, I begin to feel it in my body. And I then begin to respond to the question differently than I would just with my strategic mind. Because we in business, we're really good at responding things or planning things out with the strategic mind alone. But I think it feels to me like in the work that I do with organizations and with individual leaders that the more they can embody the full response or have a response that comes from the full embodiment, then all of a sudden you're tapping into, I think a, a, a wiser part of yourself and even perhaps a more vast sea of opportunity in which to wander yourself through. And I mean, wander by wondering I think that's such a crucial point. Uh, another way to think of it is that wonder is the antidote to fear, hmm. because fear is often produced in us. Certainly, there's an organic kind of fear that's been wired into us for millions of years. It's like if a, you're walking through the woods and suddenly a grizzly bear jumps out in front of you, that kind of thing is very useful wiring because it enables us to get a shot of adrenaline and outrun the bear. So that's, that's how it got installed. But there's another type of fear that's social anxiety that's different. It's a, a different kind of fear. It's like getting chewed out by your boss or being afraid of being rejected by someone you love and care about. Those kinds of social fears can be unfrozen and dealt with by wonder. Because if you are afraid, let's say, of rejection, you can wonder your way into the resolution of that. Because if you think, hmm, what am I really afraid of? Oh, you know, that's like that time in the sixth grade which felt so awful, but I couldn't figure out how to deal with it. You know, So you mm -hmm. go th back through your programming by wondering your way back to the source of where a lot of these glitches come from. The act of wondering defuses the fear. They come out of two different zones in ourself that are incompatible. So as you begin to wonder, it chases away and dissolves those old fear patterns. That's so good. You know, it's it. You know, staying with this line of thinking. You know, one of the things, and and I've certainly experienced this, and and a lot of the business leaders that I've worked with experience this too, is that if they're they're working in, in towards or in their zone of genius, but they're kind of doing it in a public setting, and by that I mean, you know, a, a leader tends to be you know the person at the the head of the company or the head of the division or you know wh whatever it is that they're leading. And they're kind of in the spotlight. Uh, their team is looking to them to you know, have all the answers, uh, at least a lot of corporate America expects that, and to have it all together kind of all the time. And you know, it feels to me like it's one of the hard, like public, being in public is one of the hardest places to practice being in your zone of genius. And I wonder, in addition to this wondering mindset and that thread, a beautiful thread of, 
open yourself up to that sense of wonder. Are there anything, any other tools or tips or, or perspectives that you might have about how a leader, um, regardless of business size, can practice their zone of genius in a public setting? Well, I think one way is through, first of all, creating the space in yourself. You have to start with your own commitment to your own genius zone inside and be actively spending some time in that. And here's a simple way we ask people to start, because this is something that everybody can do. And that is to keep a genius pad nearby. Uh, you know, uh, in my case, it's a legal pad. I just like to write on those with a certain type of pen. It feels good to my hand. And I also have it on my computer too, but that's a secondary thing for me. So get in the business of doing a little genius idea generation every day. Have your pad nearby. Draw a little circle and put an idea in the middle of it and then draw a line out from that and put another little circle and put an idea of do that. That's what I do. That's my form of creative doodling. I make these little circles. Um, I got that from a book way back in the 80s. And I'm just racking my brain at the moment trying to think of what the book was. Um, she called it clustering. It was a woman mm. named Gabrielle Rico or something like that. Because um, I took a little seminar from her. And she had this technique called clustering. And I've used that idea ever since. But it's basically, however you do it, it's a form of rapid fire idea generation. To me, having a commitment to generating ideas on a daily basis is better than gold because I've used the skill to acquire gold through it. And so I know it has a practical value. And I've been uh, a gold bug since the mid 70s. And so I um, uh, am an active uh, investor in gold, as well as trying to uh, produce wisdom that uh, is golden. So I happen to know that this particular wisdom is useful in that regard, because I discovered it about the same time that I started investing in gold. Sit down and generate ideas. Like right now, for example, on my computer, I have a file called books I probably will never get around to writing. <laughs> and I've got, I think last time I looked, something like 14 projects wow. on it. And I'm just, I want to keep the ideas alive, but I also acknowledge that I've got so many other things that I love to do that I'm probably not going to get around to writing these books. So I want to keep the ideas, though. So I just keep those things open in this file and uh, go into it with my eyes wide open, though, that I'm not going to beat myself up if I don't complete them. Yeah, well, you've answered one of the questions that I wanted to get into, which is how do you come up with so many brilliant and practical ideas that people can sort of uh, apply into their world? The other thing I want to shift gears here real quick. You use you have used the word "we" a few times uh, during this conversation, and I want to invite the "we" into the into the conversation. And you know, one of the things, Gay, and we've talked about this previously, that really impresses me about your work uh, is that you and Katie have seemed to not just figure out a way to live a beautiful life, but also to fuse your work and your life together. And I, and I know uh, that's no easy feat. We, our work with a lot of 
uh, entrepreneurs who are husband-wife teams. My wife and I have done some wonderful work together as well. But I'm curious um, how how you manage this or how how you integrated that work life, and maybe even take us back to the to the day when you and Katie had the the first conversation of hey let's let's do some work together and what would that look like? <laughs> yes, that was magic. Um, by the way, this is very timely because Katie and I are just today planning a little social event for our 40th wedding anniversary next month. Fantastic. And so uh, in the month of October, I don't know, not actually sure when this is going to air, but um, anyway, we're uh, coming up October 30th on our wedding anniversary uh, 40 years ago. We've known each other for about 42 years. And we met in January of 1980 in a very magical way because I had just figured out what I wanted in a close relationship. I was 34 years old. And I, uh, I always say during my teens and 20s, I created a number of versions of relationships that all resemble the trajectory of the Titanic. They, they would all start with a lot of celebration and fanfare and good intentions. And then we would strike a, a, an iceberg after six months or so and things would go downhill. And um, the way I put it is it took me 34 years to figure out where the iceberg was and it wasn't located outside myself. I, I realized that I had these certain patterns that came up in me that I would then sort of blame on the other person. And it wasn't until I was in my 30s on the one magical day that I kind of pointed the finger back at myself and said, hmm, what is it in here that I'm doing wrong that's creating no success in this key area. So that happened in December 1979. And what I came up with were really three things that I and the other person didn't always tell the truth to each other when we would conceal something, like could be something simple, like something we're hurt about or angry about or scared about. But when we would hide our feelings or hide certain activities and not tell the truth, that would ramify in the relationship, that would create problems in the relationship. Because, you know, if, you, if you're not telling the truth to the other person, you don't have a relationship, you have an entanglement of two people who are hiding things from each other. So that was a mistake that I'd made over and over and over again. And sometimes I'd be on the perpetrating end of it. And sometimes I'd be on the receiving end of it, but it didn't matter. That was the pattern that kept happening. The second pattern that I spotted in myself was that when stuff came up that always came up in relationships, my default pattern was to blame the other person and pretend that I was the victim and they were the cause of the problem. Of course, nobody will ever stand for that. So my partner then would say, no, wait a minute. It's all your fault. I'm the victim here. And then we go back around and around in this vicious circle of victimhood and until we would agree that we were both the victims. <laughs> and that was our way of resolving it. And then let's go out for dinner. You know, okay, we're both the victims here. Let's go out for dinner. Let's celebrate and, uh, that. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but it never solved the problem because a few days or a few weeks or 
a little bit of time later, something else would come up and we'd go through the whole cycle again. So it came to a head. Oh, the third thing. Um, the third thing I realized was I could, I always got in the habit of compromising my creativity to fit the relationship that a lot of times, see, as a writer, I go in a room by myself for two or three hours a day and I write and then I come out. And if that's not okay with the other person, that's a problem, you know, and it had been a problem in several big relationships I'd been on where the person kind of criticized me for spending so much time in that zone and not spending as much time um, as they wanted in the relationship. And so it was a problem because I felt under nurtured if I don't have a certain amount of contact with my own creative energy every day. And but I, I was compromising myself. So I said, okay, what if I created a relationship where both people told the truth all the time, both people took responsibility for stuff that came up rather than jockeying for the victim position? And what if both of us were totally dedicated to our creativity so that we supported that in each other rather than tried to get each other to do less of it? So I came up with those three things and I, I made a declaration to the universe that that's what I wanted. And I, I kind of want to make a long story short here, but jump forward to a month later, I walk into a room in Menlo Park, California, mm -hmm. and there's 50 or 60 people that are there to hear, hear, hear me give a talk. Mm -hmm. And it's the faculty and staff of the Institute of Transpersonal Psychology. And one of them is a woman named Kathleen, who goes by the name of Katie now, because it's easier to say than Kathleen, after you've had Oprah Winfrey mispronounce your name as Catherine a couple of times <laughs> and, then have to correct, and have to correct it to Kathleen. You're yeah. looking for something uh, a little snappier. So she goes by Katie now. But uh, I'm, I, she was there with the faculty and staff because she was in two roles. She was the movement therapy professor there at the Institute for Psycho uh, Transpersonal Psychology, and she was also completing her PhD there. She had a kind of a double deal with them that she was getting part of her professor salary paid off by being allowed to finish her PhD there. Anyway, that's the, the long story. But to make a, the important part of the story come alive, I thought she was absolutely gorgeous. And I tried to figure out a way that I wanted to talk to her at the break. And uh, so when I got together, I said, I want to ask you out for coffee, but I got to tell you that I just had this big breakthrough a month ago where I figured out what I really want. And so I named off the three things. I said, I really want a relationship where both people are honest, both people take responsibility, and both people are committed to their relationships because, I mean, to their creativity, because that's how I've screwed up every relationship in the past. And so um, I said, on those terms, are you interested in having a cup of coffee with me? Mm. And so there was about a 10 or 15 second delay where her eyes kind of rolled back in her head. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and then finally she said, how about lunch? And so she even took it to the next level. And so that was uh, 40 some years ago. And uh, here we are. Uh, we've uh, written, uh, I think, about 10 books together that we've co-authored now. And we've, I think, taught uh, 2,500 
seminars together, something like that, and been around the world 30 some times. So um, it is possible to make your dream come true, folks. Mm. And my dream came true because I really wanted to work with my partner and to, you know, not have any separation between what our hearts and minds were both dedicated to. And I honor that that's not always going to be possible, you know, that, that you might be um, in partnership as a therapist with a person who's a high tech specialist. And I know many people who are, have that kind of relationship. So it doesn't always have to be in the same domain, as long as your hearts and minds are integrated about the practices and principles in the relationships. And that's, uh, that has to start with certain core commitments to things like expressing ourselves honestly and eliminating the blame game through taking responsibility in a healthy way and being full-time, full-fledged, dedicated to our creativity in our particular domain. So you find the harmony then through the, the, the alignment of values and foci within your life. And you know, one, you know, once those are openly articulated and really even agreed upon, whether it's for lunch or for life, um, then you can find day-to-day -day harmony, it sounds like, in, in all of that. Yes, and it needs to have room for both people to bring their unique abilities. Like in our relationship, my, my relationship with Katie, we discovered very early on that there are certain things that she can do effortlessly that you know don't tax her energy, like she manages all our money, for example. Whereas I had never, until I met her, uh, ever balanced my checkbook. Mm. You know, if, if more mm -hmm. was needed, I would put more <laughs> in. And I just didn't pay attention to that level of detail. You know, and I had a, a bookkeeper that handled stuff like that. But Katie happens to do it magnificently well. And so in our own uh, domain here, we uh, have it divided up. She, you know, if she needs a big picture consultation with me, uh, I, I give it to her, but I'm really good at making it. And mm. I'm just not interested in the actual numbers game of making sure they balance out every week. So, um, but then there are certain things that I'm really good at in the writing and publishing domain that she's absolutely uninterested in. And so uh, I end up doing most of that. So uh, mm -hmm. finding your own way to express your genius is a key. That's great. That's great. Yeah. And so that I could go or, and part of me wants to go much deeper into that. Maybe we could save that for a future conversation, but I want to be respectful of your time here. We're, we're coming close to the end. Um, if I offer the phrase, if I, you know, bringing this full circle, if I were to offer the phrase, a beautiful business, how would you describe that? It has several dimensions. At the core, a beautiful business is one that operates in a field of integrity. And very few people know operationally what integrity is. But one of the things that creates beauty in a business is that people are aligned with their purpose, where their personal purpose is aligned with the purpose of the business. So that's the key. That's one thing that keeps us is in integrity is alignment uh, 
with our personal purpose. A second is alignment with transparency, being transparent and open with each other, being able to say, I'm angry with you and I still care about you, or I felt hurt about that and I still want to be connected to you. Being able to be emotionally transparent and transparent in all areas of your life is incredibly important. And that's a second pillar of integrity. A third pillar has to do with operating in a space of how to take personal responsibility and how to let people take personal responsibility and insist upon it without blame. Blame and responsibility are two different things. And I never, ever want to advocate blame, but many people think taking responsibility means to blame yourself. Uh, and that's based on old childhood stuff, like when mom or dad or Uncle Ted storms into the room, sees the mess and says, who's responsible for this? They're looking to blame. <laughs> that, that's yeah. a different thing than responsibility. But that's a third pillar of integrity. A fourth pillar that's absolutely essential in any business is operating in a spirit of gratitude and appreciation. I've been in businesses where that's not practiced, where it's much more cold and unheartful. And I think that's ultimately dangerous because the medical bills go up, the days of illness go up, the, the personality squabbles go up. But if you can maintain a rich flow of appreciation and gratitude as you go about your day, that makes a huge difference. And I've walked the halls of 800 different corporations and businesses in my consulting day. And I know the difference between a culture where people feel valued and appreciation and appreciated and one that doesn't. And so it takes some work, but at the, at the source of beauty, is integrity. Oh, that's really good. And I wonder if there are any examples of businesses or brands that you've ever worked with or that you buy from that might fit that description. Well, where would I start? One that comes to mind is I had some of the most profound consulting experiences down at Dell Computer back in the 90s when they were expanding wildly and the stock was doubling sometimes uh, every month or week. Or, um, but it, it's a source of several things because one of the smartest things I ever did was I took some cash and some stock for some of the work I did down there. And the stock ended up uh, splitting half a dozen times before it was uh, finished. So it turned out to be a uh, really lucrative uh, deal that I made with them. So um that stands out in my mind. But the, the main thing that came out of that with is like from the very top, Michael Dell is one of the most amazing human beings I've ever met. And one way he excels is speed of implementation at the idea level. He can get hold of an idea and, uh, and apply it in seconds, you know, like, and, and his top team was like that too. I was just thinking of an incident with, um, Mort uh, Topfer, who was his number two guy down there that had come over from Motorola. And Mort um, 
at the time was having some anger. It, he would, he was from Brooklyn originally, and he, he could blow up in anger. And 10 seconds later, he'd forgotten about it. But somebody that grew up in, uh, in uh, Keokuk, Iowa, or whatever, uh, didn't get over it so easy because they didn't grow, grow up yeah. in Brooklyn, wasn't used to yelling at each other. And so, uh, the, uh, but their speed of implementation, I would say, hey, Mort, your anger is really a concealment for for your sadness and disappointment with the person. That's why you're blowing up in anger. Boom, he would implement that. He'd pick up the phone and say, look, I just blew up in anger at you. I see now that it's based on the fact that I felt sad and I felt disappointed. And now I realize I'm projecting some other disappointments onto you because you remind me of certain other people in my past. Whoosh, you know, that could mm. have taken months you know, but he handled it in 10 seconds. So speed of implementing ideas always just blows me away. And I, uh, the companies I've worked with are ones that stand out in that regard. Um, there are others, but uh, I see that the clock is ticking. So yeah, uh, yeah. you can read, read some of my books and I've mentioned some of them in there. Yeah. So one last question before we wrap up. Um, so I publish, uh, you mentioned my blog early on, I publish a, at least once a year, a, a list of books that I've been reading that are, that I call or fall into the category of non-business books for business leaders. Um, and feel free to mention any of your own, because I would put a lot of those in, in that category, but what books might you recommend that fall into this category of non-business books for business leaders? Uh, well, one of my own, actually, I have two mystery series that I've written. Uh, so if you like mysteries and like novels, I highly recommend them, not just because I've written them, because they have all of them have spiritual and psychological and even useful business tips woven into them. That's kind of the specialty of them. So one of them is a series that uh, I call the Dharma Detective Series that's based on a Tibetan Buddhist private detective who works in Los Angeles. And his name is Tenzing Norbu, goes by the nickname of Ten. So the books all have Ten in the title. The first one is called The First Rule of Ten. The second one is The Second Rule of Ten. And there's half a dozen of those. Uh, the other uh, detective that I write about is Sir Errol Hyde, H-Y-D-E, uh, who is a crosstown competitor of Sherlock Holmes a hundred and some years ago. And he's a, uh, an aristocrat and a, a kind of a randy dandy, I like to call him. And uh, he's funny and hilarious and uh, has a great unique approach to life. So uh, that's like the first adventure of Sir Errol Hyde, the second adventure of Sir Errol Hyde, and the third adventure of Sir Errol Hyde. So I uh, highly recommend those. And uh, I think you'll find some of the principles in them very useful. Well, we'll be sure to put all of those uh, and including if we can find the link to the clustering uh, uh, that you mentioned early on in the show notes. And I've get, uh, actually, I've remembered her name. It's Gabrielle Lusser, L-U-S-S-E-R, Rico, R-I-C-O. And I can't remember the name of the book, but her full name just popped into my mind. Beautiful. We'll find that. We'll put it in the show notes. Yay. Uh, it is just always a pleasure. Your generosity, your intelligence, your humor, your spirit is, is just effervescent. And I deeply appreciate uh, both this time that we've spent together and all the time that we've spent together in the past. 
My pleasure, Stephen. Keep uh, writing those uh, beautiful pieces and sending them out. I'm a, a grateful recipient. Thank you, Gay. Thanks for listening to Beautiful Business with Stephen Morris. Make sure to follow the podcast so you don't miss an episode. To download a free chapter of Steve's book, The Beautiful Business, go to beautifulbusinesspodcast.com. Again, that's beautifulbusinesspodcast.com.